What you are about to hear is the kind of program ideally suited for radio. This is Take One with Bill Cameron. Cameron asks the questions, gets out of the way, doesn't interrupt, and lets interesting people tell their interesting stories. No sound bites, no spin, no shouting. Unedited interviews with Chicago newsmakers and compelling discussions about local breaking news. This is Take One with Bill Cameron on WLSAM 890. This week, Barack Obama on his new cause. Our topic, how to get the disinformation, conspiracy theories, and hate out of social media. The former president from here in Chicago was out in Silicon Valley recently at Stanford University. He had new comprehensive proposals to regulate the darker corners of high tech. Here he is. Number one, media companies, tech companies, social media platforms did not create the divisions in our society here or in other parts of the world. Social media did not create racism or white supremacist groups. Didn't create the kind of ethno-nationalism that Putin's enraptured with. It didn't create sexism, class conflict, religious strife, greed, envy, all the deadly sins. All these things existed long before the first tweet or Facebook poke. Solving the disinformation problem won't cure all that ails our democracies or tears at the fabric of our world. But it can help tamp down divisions and let us rebuild the trust and solidarity needed to make our democracy stronger and to take on anti-women you know, mentalities and, and deal with racism in our societies and, and build bridges between people. It can do that. Second, we aren't going to get rid of all offensive or inflammatory content on the web. That is a straw man. We'd be wrong to try. Freedom of speech is at the heart of every democratic society. In America, those protections are enshrined in the First Amendment to our Constitution. There's a reason it came first in the Bill of Rights. I'm pretty close to a First Amendment absolutist. I believe that in most instances, the answer to bad speech is good speech. I believe that the free, robust, sometimes antagonistic exchange of ideas produces better outcomes and a healthier society. No democratic government can or should do what China, for example, is doing, simply telling people what they can and cannot say or publish while trying to control what others say about their country abroad. And I don't have a lot of confidence that any single individual or organization, private or public, should be charged or we do a good job at determining who gets to hear what. That said, the First Amendment is a check on the power of the state. 
It doesn't apply to private companies like Facebook or Twitter any more than it applies to editorial decisions made by the New York Times or Fox News. Never has. Social media companies already make choices about what is or is not allowed on their platforms and how that content appears, both explicitly through content moderation and implicitly through algorithms. The problem is we often don't know what principles govern those decisions. And on an issue of enormous public interest, there has been little public debate and practically no democratic oversight. Three, any rules we come up with to govern the distribution of content on the internet will involve value judgments. None of us are perfectly objective. What we consider an unshakable truth today may prove to be totally wrong tomorrow. But that doesn't mean some things aren't truer than others. Or that we can't draw lines between opinions, facts, honest mistakes, intentional deceptions. We make these distinctions all the time in our daily lives. At work, in school, at home, in sports. And we can do the same when it comes to internet content. As long as we agree on a set of principles, some core values to guide the work. So, in the interest of full transparency, here's what I think our guiding principles should be. The way I'm going to evaluate any proposal touching on social media and the internet is whether it strengthens or weakens the prospects for a healthy, inclusive democracy, whether it encourages robust debate and respect for our differences, whether it reinforces rule of law and self-governance, whether it helps us make collective decisions based on the best available information, and whether it recognizes the rights and freedoms and dignity of all of our citizens. Whatever changes contribute to that vision, I'm for. Whatever erodes that vision, I'm against. Just so you know. All right, so with that as my starting point, I believe we have to address not just the supply of toxic information, but also the demand for it. On the supply side, tech platforms need to accept that they play a unique role in how we as a people and, and people around the world are consuming information and that their decisions have an impact on every aspect of society. With that power comes accountability. And in democracies like ours, at least, the need for some democratic oversight. For years, social media companies have resisted that kind of accountability. They're not unique in that regard. And every private corporation wants to do anything it wants. So the social media platforms call themselves neutral platforms with no editorial role in what their users saw. 
They insisted that the content people see on social media has no impact on their beliefs or behavior. <laughs> Even though their, their business models and their profits are based on telling advertisers the exact opposite. The, now, the good news is, is that almost all the big tech platforms now acknowledge some responsibility for content on their platforms, and they're investing in large teams of people to monitor it. Given the sheer volume of content, this strategy can feel like a game of whack-a-mole. Still, uh, in talking to people at these companies, I believe they are sincere in trying to limit content that engages in hate speech, encourages violence, or poses a threat to public safety. They genuinely are concerned about it. They want to do something about it. But while content moderation can limit the distribution of clearly dangerous content, it doesn't go far enough. Users who want to spread disinformation have become experts at pushing right up to the line of what at least published company policies allow. And at those margins, social media platforms tend not to want to do anything. Not just because they don't want to be accused of censorship, because they still have a financial incentive to keep as many users engaged as possible. More importantly, these companies are still way too guarded about how exactly their standards operate or how their engagement ranking systems influence what goes viral and what doesn't. Now, some companies have been taking the next step in managing toxic content, experimenting with new product designs that, you know, to use just one example, add friction to slow the spread of potentially harm harmful content. And that kind of innovation is a step in the right direction. It should be applauded. But I also think decisions like this shouldn't be left solely to private interests. These decisions affect all of us. And just like every other industry that has a big impact in our society, that means these big platforms need to be subject to some level of public oversight and regulation. Now, right now, a lot of the regulatory debate centers on Section 230 of the United States Code, which, as some of you know, says the tech companies generally can't be held liable for most content that other people post on their platforms. But let's, fa let's face it, uh, these platforms are not like the old phone company. And while I'm not convinced that wholesale repeal of Section 230 is the answer, it is clear that tech companies have changed dramatically over the last 20 years. And we need to consider reforms to Section 230 to account for those changes including whether platforms should be required to have a higher standard of care when it comes to advertising on their site. And by the way, I, I believe and I've seen that regulation and innovation are not mutually exclusive. Now, here in the United States, we have a long history of regulating new technologies in the name of public safety, from cars and airplanes to prescription drugs to appliances. And while companies initially always complain that the rules are going to stifle innovation and destroy the industry, 
The truth is, is that a good regulatory environment usually ends up spurring innovation because it raises the bar on safety and quality. And it turns out that innovation can meet that higher bar. And if consumers trust that new technology is doing right by them and is safe, they're more likely to use it. And if properly structured, regulation can promote competition and keep incumbents from freezing out new innovators. So a regulatory structure, a smart one, needs to be in place, designed in consultation with tech companies and experts and communities that are affected, including communities of color and others that sometimes are not well represented here in Silicon Valley, that will allow these companies to operate effectively while also slowing the spread of harmful content. In some cases, industry standards may replace or substitute for regulation, but regulation has to be part of the answer. Beyond that, tech companies need to be more transparent about how they operate. And so much of the conversation around disinformation is focused on what people post. The bigger issue is what content these platforms promote. Algorithms have evolved to the point where nobody on the outside of these companies can accurately predict what they'll do, unless they're really sophisticated and spend a lot of time tracking it, and sometimes even the people who build them aren't sure. And that's a problem. In a democracy, we can rightly expect companies to subject the design of their products and services to some level of scrutiny. At minimum, they should have to share that information with researchers and regulators who are charged with keeping the rest of us safe. This may seem like an odd example, and forgive me, you vegans out there, but if a meatpacking company has a proprietary technique to keep, say, our hot dogs fresh and clean, they don't have to reveal to the world what that technique is. They do have to tell the meat inspector. In the same way, tech companies should be able to protect their intellectual property while also following certain safety standards that we as a country, not just them, have agreed are necessary for the greater good. And we've seen this as part of the Platform Accountability and Transparency Act that's being proposed by a bipartisan group of senators here in the United States. Doesn't happen often. And we've also seen it negotiated in Europe as part of the European Union's Digital Services Act. Again, we don't expect tech companies to solve all these problems on their own. There are folks in these companies and in this community who have shown extraordinary good faith in some cases, but that's not enough. We, we do expect these companies to affirm the importance of our democratic institutions, not dismiss them, and to work to find the right combination of regulation and industry standards that will make democracy stronger. 
and because companies recognize the often dangerous relationship between social media, nationalism, domestic hate groups, they do need to engage with vulnerable populations about how to put better safeguards in place to protect minority populations, ethnic populations, religious minorities, wherever they operate. So, for example, in the United States, they should be working with, not always contrary to, those groups that are trying to prevent voter suppression that specifically has targeted black and brown communities. In other words, these companies need to have some other North Star other than just making money and increasing market share. Fix the problem that, in part, they helped create, but also to stand for something bigger. And to the employees of these companies and to the students here at Stanford who might well be future employees of these companies, you have the power to move things in the right direction. You can advocate for change. You can be part of this redesign. And if not, you can vote with your feet and go work with companies that are trying to do the right thing. So that's on the supply side. Now, let's talk about the demand side of the equation. It starts with breaking through our information bubbles. Look, I understand that there are a whole bunch of people in this country who have views diametrically opposed to mine. I promise. They tell me <laughs> all the time. I get it. I'm not suggesting that all of us have to spend our days reading opinions we disagree with or looking for media stories that fundamentally don't share our values. But it is possible to broaden our perspectives. Now, an interesting study came out recently, and, and this is just one study, so take it with a grain of salt. That the researchers paid a large group of regular Fox News watchers to watch CNN for almost a month. And the, these were not swing voters. These, these were hardcore, you know, Hannity, Carlson fans, right? I mean, they're, they're right there. And what the researchers found was that at the end of the month, people's views on certain issues, like whether voting by mail should be allowed or whether electing Joe Biden would lead to more violence against police, on some of these issues, their, their views had changed by five, eight, ten points. These people didn't suddenly turn into liberals. <laughs> I, I'm sure they still don't like me. <laughs> but at the margins, they had reshaped their perspectives in meaningful ways. Studies like this show our opinions aren't fixed. And that means our divisions aren't fixed either if we can agree on some common baseline of facts and agree on some common baseline of how 
we debate and sort out our disagreements. The, the, the divisions that exist in this country aren't going away anytime soon, but the information we get, the stories we tell ourselves, can, as Lincoln said, encourage the better, better angels of our nature. They can also encourage the worst. And a healthy democracy depends on our better angels being encouraged. So, as citizens, we have to take it upon ourselves to become better consumers of news, looking at sources, thinking before we share, and teaching our kids to become critical thinkers who know how to evaluate sources and separate opinion from fact. In fact, a number of school districts around the country are working to train kids in this kind of online media literacy, not, not around any particular ideological perspective, but just how to check a source. Does this person who's typing in his mother's basement in his underwear seem a credible <laughs> authority on climate change? That's something we, we should all want to support. Barack Obama on how to get the hate and disinformation out of social media. After a news break, the Take One Roundtable with Ray Long, Greg Hines, and Heather Sharon. You're listening to Take One with Bill Cameron on WLSAM 890. Time for the Roundtable, where we just get to tell the truth with Ray Long of the Tribune. Hey, Ray. Hey there, Bill. Greg Hines of Cranes. Hey, Greg. Sure. And Heather Sharon of WTTW. Hi, Bill. Well, first, the old gray battleship, the Sun-Times building, got torn down to make way for, of all things, Trump Tower. And now the Chicago Tribune Freedom Center is targeted to be torn down for a gambling den. Greg, are uh, newspapers just jinxed? Uh, you can almost think that, Bill. Uh, uh, they certainly are if uh, if, uh, if uh, Lori Lightfoot gets her way, at least on this one. But uh, uh, there's some reason to think that she may not. Um, uh, the mayor has uh, made her pick this week. It was a absolute no surprise to anybody. She has uh, done a series, or City Hall has done a series of favors for Bally's recently. Uh, but there's some pretty stiff opposition up in that part of the world, uh, which may be why the mayor is trying to ram this thing through uh, in a hurry. She wants a vote in the city council in just two weeks, even though there's only been one public hearing in the neighborhood affected. Um, if you look at the details of, uh, of what was uh, put on the table by the three bidders, according to the city in their own report, there's really uh, there was really no financial difference between the offer that came from Bally's and the one that came from Neil Blum at the 78 property in the South Loop. In fact, by uh, by one account, uh, Bloom actually put more money on the table, despite what the mayor said. Uh, and uh, by the city's own account, the Rivers uh, Casino would create uh, more jobs than the one at Bally's. But the mayor seems to have her heart set on this one. Mayors usually get what they want in this town, but man, it's going to be a good fight. Heather, I heard you asking the mayor about the financial side of the deal, and she readily agreed that getting the $40 million instead of the $25 million up front was, was a key factor, wasn't it? it? It was, and not only is it $40 million up front, 
which is a huge increase from Bally's initial offer of $25 million up front. But Bally's has also agreed to pay the city $4 million per year. And I couldn't get any details yesterday or today about exactly how that money will be spent. But it is not a small amount of money that will help tide the city over until when the permanent casino is up and running, which won't be until 2026 under the best circumstances. I think the other wrinkle we have to talk about here is the fact that it was a huge surprise to just about everybody involved that Bally's will plans to open a temporary casino at the Medina Temple, which is, of course, a smack in the heart of River North at Ohio and Wabash. And that came out of left field for everyone because originally Bally's planned to convert an unused warehouse on the Tribune property for a temporary casino, which could open as soon as the summer of 2023. There are a lot of questions, not the least of which there is no aldermanic sign-off on that temporary casino um, at the Medina Temple. So it is going to be just, as Greg said, a huge city council fight. Um, and it raises, I think, again, a lot of questions about whether the mayor has has lived up to her promises of transparency and um, open dealing. She faced a lot of questions from reporters yesterday about that, and she was clearly aggravated by them. But those questions aren't going away anytime soon. Hey, Ray, since you work for the Tribune, any uh, sentimentality about losing the Freedom Center to a gambling den? <laughs> Well, it's it's hard to be sentimental about a place that we've barely moved into. Um, we, of course, uh, abandoned the Tribune Tower showcase uh, place that was built uh, years ago, and now that's turning into condos. And uh, then we went to the Prudential Center, and we uh, left there. And then we just were starting to get settled in at the Freedom Center, and now I'm thinking, Bill, I may need to learn how to do blackjack on the side because uh, <laughs> this is the place where it's going to go eventually, at least if uh, the mayor gets her way. Yeah, I, the sentimentality really does reside with Nathan Hale and the old Tribune Tower downtown. That was the, uh, that was the crime against journalism. Uh, do you have any sense, Ray, that the votes aren't there to approve, you know, digging well, up the, the uh, Freedom well, Center? I, I, I think, and it was reported today that I, that uh, there's a lot of of uh, heft coming from uh, labor that has uh, weighed in on this, and they have a, uh, are striking a deal with Bally's to to uh, get union unionized workers. So that's a that's something that uh, will play into the final vote here because uh, unions will be pushing uh, aldermen to try to vote this way. But I don't think I don't think that that is the final uh, deal here. And two weeks can be uh, an eternity if you really want to get into the full scale battle. And I think that's what we're going to have. Greg, will so you let me a little weigh in on that one a little bit if I sure. could? Um, um, I think that, uh, like I said at, at the outset here, you, you never bet against a mayor in, in Chicago and with the city council. But I think the very fact that the mayor has this on such a fast track—I mean, she's unveiled it and bam—and she wants a she wants a vote in like 18 days. That tells you something. 
like she doesn't want to think there's real opposition, she think there's real problems with it. I mean, one of the other things that has gotten very little media attention, but it's true, is that Bally's uh, is is, uh, is uh, essentially uh, involved in all parts of all sorts of corporate drama now. It's run by a by a hedge fund. Uh, uh, they uh, there was an offer to buy them out recently. Uh, they said that they didn't their their financial performance recently has been has been a little iffy. Um, uh, they've never done a casino of this magnitude in a big market like Chicago. They tend to run smaller things in smaller cities. Um, so I think one of the questions all of them need to ask if they're going to do their job is, is this company really up to this kind of challenge? What are the risks that uh, we give them this? And, and uh, five years down the road, we find they can't perform. Mm-hmm. Uh, Heather, I was a little surprised the other two bidders didn't have deals with labor. Were you? I, I was. Um, I think that um, the city's request for proposals was very clear that there was never a circumstance that the city was going to approve a proposal that did not have what's called a labor peace agreement, which essentially just allows employees to decide whether they want to be unionized or not. And it obligates the company to pay essentially prevailing wage so they can't undercut sort of other restaurants or um, concert venues. Um, it, that, you know, it, it seems like a, a strange debate because certainly um, a, any casino that could make it through the city council was going to be unionized. And I think that debate was a little bit of a red herring. Um, and it potentially could have, you know, ended up to Bally's favor because there was, that it was, was no small mistake that this announcement was made at the Carpenters headquarters. Um, and there is going to be a significant amount of pressure on older people who are perhaps less than enthusiastic, not only, to, you know, to say, um, you're against 3,000 permanent unionized jobs in Chicago that would bring $200 million to the city to pay off police and fire pensions. Um, it's gonna, that is going to make for a tough vote, even if these older people don't think that this casino is in the right place or being run by the, 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 the right company. We should talk about the egregious leak of Justice Alito's draft to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, abortion rights, of course, are protected here in Illinois, but Ray, what effect do you think this whole hoorah, which is not final yet, is going to have on the June 28th primary? Well, there is a possibility that that will carry over heavily into the primaries here. It may become, I mean, Governor Edgar was quoted in uh, uh, Shia Kapos's report uh, this week as saying, uh, you know, that'll be the issue in in the campaigns. Can that spill over to the Illinois Supreme Court races? There's two of them, and if they both went Republican, uh, that would shift the majority of the Illinois Supreme Court from four to three. That would be if they played out and won in the general election. So uh, there's also uh, the factor of will Bill Griffin, uh, the, the billionaire weigh in heavily uh, again with uh, the Supreme Court races. And and, uh, I believe I saw a report, correct me guys if I'm wrong, that he had already dumped some money into into the Supreme Court races here. So I I see that not only as uh, lively 
issue on the legislative and congressional scene, but I see that as a potential hot button in the Supreme Court races for the Illinois Supreme Court. And Greg, how about the impact on the Republican primary for governor? Yeah, that's where I think you're going to see the most immediate impact, although Ray is right, the Supreme Court races are uh, worth keeping an eye on. Uh, The Republican front runner, according to the latest uh, polls anyhow, is uh, Richard Urban, the mayor of uh, Aurora, who thanks to uh, Ken Griffin, the hedge fund guy, has had TV ads running night and day uh, for months now, it seems, uh, statewide, uh, and has built up his name recognition. Uh, But he's been... uh, Pressed uh, not too far from behind by by another guy named uh, Darren Bailey, who's a state senator from uh, downstate. He's uh, more conservative um, and very very uh, pro life on the abortion question. <clears throat> uh, Urban has described himself as pro life, but he has had absolutely nothing to say, nothing zero about uh, about uh, the Supreme Court uh, decision and making that appears to be. Um, his people have said, oh, he wants to, uh, he doesn't want to say anything till the, the uh, uh, decision comes out and it's final. Well, that's conveniently not until around the primary. Uh, and that gives you, I think, a pretty good clue as to what's going on. Um, uh, Urban doesn't want to say anything uh, now that would risk offending uh, conservatives at dominant Republican parties, uh, Republican primaries. He wants to, on the other hand, he doesn't want to do anything to uh, offend suburban women, swing voters in the fall, uh, who are not going to, I think, hear something other than we, you know, pro-life stuff all the time. So he's trying to, hasn't figured out how to walk the narrow line, so he's not saying anything. Uh, Maybe he'll get away with that. He's got a lot of uh, money for TV, but... uh, that's kind of a dangerous trick. I think on this one, this is such an explosive issue. I think voters want to know, and they want to know well before they vote, where a candidate stands. Yeah, Heather, what does it mean for women in general that uh, it looks like the Supreme Court is about to overturn Roe v. Wade? Well, um, it means that a right that women have enjoyed for the last 50 years will no longer be available to them nationwide. Now, the issue is going to be a little different in Illinois than it is in other states like Missouri, for example. Um, Illinois has very strong um, laws on the books that will ensure that women in Illinois have um, easy, uh, if not ample, access to abortions because if Roe versus Wade is overturned, as we all ex- expect, um, it will immediately mean that abortions will no longer be available in basically any state surrounding Illinois, and that will send tens of thousands of women to Illinois for that health care. Um, that will make it harder for Illinois women to get an abortion. And I think it's very possible that if the um, GOP takes over the House and the Senate and the White House in 2024, that they will, if not consider, but also pass a a national ban on abortion and other reproductive health care. And that, of course, will trump Illinois' law. So we heard a lot from Governor J.B. Pritzker about how he would not allow Illinois' laws to be overturned by the Supreme Court. Um, That 
is likely the case in the near term, but it is not at all certain in the long term, which is really what Democratic politicians like he and others are counting on to sort of prove former Governor Edgar correct and sort of change the the political calculus, not only for this summer's primary, but also for the general election in November. Now, Heather, what is your sense? Does do these developments excite a greater turnout of Democratic women or Republican women? Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not sure. It's a, a fool's game to sort of predict the future. Um, but if there is an, an an issue that has the potential to sort of reset the, the political calculus in Illinois and other states, uh, abortion is certainly uh, that kind of issue. The other thing is, is that this June primary is coming at a weird time um, in a weird time in our history, because, of course, usually the primary is in March, been delayed because of the because of covid and the delays in the census. So I think it is reasonable to expect that turnout will be significantly lower than even usual in a midterm primary election. And that, of course, will mean that the most motivated voters only will have a a lion's share of the say of the outcome. How that all works out, I I simply don't know. It's also not certain that we would get a final decision um, on Roe versus Wade before the, the June 27th or the June 28th primary, the last day of the Supreme Court term, is June 27th. So that could happen uh, one right after the other. And at that point, it's truly anyone's game. Hey, Greg, we should talk about Boeing and Baxter. Boeing announcing it's moving its downtown headquarters out of state and Baxter uh, selling its campus in Deerfield. What's going on here? Well, uh, in Baxter, this is just uh, the chapter 14 in the continuing book about how we're reacting to COVID. Uh, people, uh, including some of us, uh, work remotely much more than they did. They don't go into the office. So if you're a corporation and you spend a lot of money on real estate, you want to spend less. So you downsize. Uh, so that's what they're doing. They're getting rid of their headquarters up in the north suburbs. And uh, since they have more remote workers and presumably going to move into much smaller places where, uh, uh, you know, everybody doesn't have a big office. Everybody has maybe a, a small office they share with three other people who are in the office once or, t- once or twice a week. In Boeing's case, um, this comes at a, at a a very awkward time for the city. Uh, there's a lot of concern that our crime rates now are really starting to hurt our economic development and force away potential companies. Boeing had some particular reasons uh, to leave. Um, it's a defense contractor, uh, which means uh, uh, you want to be in close contact with people at the Pentagon. They've had all kinds of regulatory problems on the on the commercial aviation side, which means you want to be in close touch with the FAA in Washington. Um, uh, their, uh, their chief executives uh, no longer live in the Chicago area as they did for years. So from their perspective, there's no particular reason to be here. Uh, the original reason to be here to kind of dilute the control of folks in Seattle, that's already occurred. Uh, it may make more sense to be in, in Washington, but it doesn't look good for the city. Um, uh, if if the mayor tried to put up a real fight to save this thing, it's 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 not apparent. Um, uh, if you talk to city officials, they say, "Oh, oh, it's only 400 jobs. There's only one company." Well, that's I'm sorry, that's that's, that's a little weak. Um, this was a big, important company. It's it iconic when we got them. Uh, city officials also say there's a lot of the good stuff that's coming on the just down the road. Well, I hope so. Uh, but in the meantime, it's it's 
a little bit of a black eye. I mean, Chicago's been killed in the national media lately. There's a huge Washington Post lately story recently about how North Michigan Avenue is, is a wasteland. There's nobody there. Now, uh, the, the, I think the fourth uh, highest hit story on the Wall Street Journal website yesterday was Boeing moves out of Chicago. This is not helpful. And, Ray, we should talk about the LaSalle Veterans Home, where we had a really damning audit by the state auditor general this week over, uh, you know, what what was going on as 36 veterans were dying of COVID. How damaging is this to Pritzker? Well, I think it is very damaging. I'm surprised that the Republicans have not uh, been all over this all along. Um, this has uh, happened on Pritzker's watch, and... The audit shows that Pritzker's administration did not move fast enough. Uh, people were dying. People had COVID. Uh, it was one of the biggest clusters of, uh, of uh, retirement-type homes in, in the state, and uh, eventually uh, 36 people died. And um, it, it blames a lot of it on the uh, Department of Public Health, uh, saying it failed to get involved quick enough uh, when the outbreak had uh, been detected. And um, it said all but four of the 36 residents who died were positive prior to the agency's first site visit on November 12th. And they knew about this on November 1st. So, of course, there have been dozens of lawsuits filed, too. And uh there are are uh, ironies here because Pritzker uh, blasted Rauner because of uh, mm-hmm. people dying from the Legionnaires' disease outbreak at the Quincy Veterans Home four years ago. So uh, this is not a, a good thing for the Pritzker administration, and uh, it looks like they just didn't act soon enough and should have acted sooner. You could just see the Republicans getting the TV ad ready to run in September or October and show dead old people in the picture Pritzker. I mean, it's not going to be helpful to him. Yeah, it'll be runner yeah. in reverse. That's Greg Hines of Cranes. Thanks to him, also to Ray Log of the Tribune and Heather Sharon of WTTW. After a break, we'll let Lori Lightfoot defend her record. You're listening to Take One with Bill Cameron on WLSAM 890. Well, you probably noticed Mayor Lightfoot has been hit by an avalanche of criticism as her try for re-election approaches. She gets blamed for crime in the streets, high taxes, even her handling of COVID. So let's go beyond the 10-second soundbite and let Lori Lightfoot defend her record. I think that we have done um, a very good job under very daunting odds. I have said this before, I will challenge you to find another mayor who has uh, had to address the kind of challenges that I have in the last three years. And I don't think you're going to find it because it's this unprecedented set of challenges, a pandemic, um, historic economic meltdown, civic unrest, um, uh, spiking virus that we've seen all across the city, really all happening within about a six-month time period, and then having to continue to keep people um, confident and hopeful and safe from the pandemic, safe from violence. All of these things compress in an incredible time period. There was no honeymoon period for me coming in as mayor. And so I feel very uh, confident about the things that we've been able to do, the kind of climate um, that we have set, 
you know, many of you say, oh, the mayor doesn't get along with people and this and that. Well, look at the results. Look at the results with that and report on that, you folks who um, like to write about the challenges and how um, the powers of the incumbency won't benefit this mayor. What I would say to you is we get stuff done and we get stuff done because we build relationships and partnerships that enable us to do that. Whether it's passing um, a budget to close not one but two historic budget deficits, whether it's um, coming out of the pandemic and forging a plan forward that people all over the country are calling us about and saying how you did that, whether it's forging, I think, the most equitable and inclusive uh, vaccine distribution plan um, in the country. The list goes on and on, and you heard some of that today, and I hope you'll actually report on some of the things that show Chicago is well poised for the future. So I feel very confident about where we are and where we're going to be. And like any good gardener, when you plant the seeds, you till the soil, you watch the shoots rise up from the garden, you want to be there to reap the harvest. And now Lori Lightfoot can tout a Bally Casino deal in River West. But before it's all done, she'll probably attract 10 or more challengers. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks to Matt Mellon and Jonathan Bregman for production assistance. And good luck to Matt in his next adventure. He's been a vital part of these programs. Thanks for everything, Matt. I'm Bill Cameron. You've been listening to Take One with Bill Cameron. Unedited interviews with Chicago newsmakers and compelling discussions about local breaking news. Take One with Bill Cameron on WLSAM 890.